Very good morning, everyone. Morning. Today's scripture passage will make you feel like the sermon has ended even before it begins. <laughs> Why? Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Let me read it to us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs> we already went through several prayers, right? <laughs> but I'm sure we are, you know, we are. I'm just kidding. I'll circle back to this passage, why I chose this passage later on. We want to continue to pray and ask the Lord to help us in this sermon. Come, let us pray again. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us to understand the words that we preach today. We pray importantly, you not help us not only to understand, but to abide in your truth, in you, Lord, and then to obey it. For that is what will cause us to truly become alive. So we commit this sermon again into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we begin a sermon series, a new sermon series that will take us through Christmas and likely into the early months of 2023 as well. And the overarching uh, sermon series is called Knowing God. Knowing God. Our church theme this year is God Calls. But who is this God? Who is this God who calls? Do we know Him? How has He revealed Himself? And so this sermon series will basically uh, explore different expressions of God as revealed in Scripture that will enable us to know God's nature and His character better. Most importantly, it is really for us to grow, to become like Him. That is the whole purpose of this sermon series. I have now on the slides three columns, God's nature, who God is that we can never become because that is who God is. We are creatures. He is the creator God. We will never become like Him in His full, complete nature. For example, He is invisible, unchanging, all-knowing, infinite, timeless. These are characteristics of God's nature that we will never ever be. But then there are aspects of God's character, who God is that we should become like Him, to grow to become like Him in His character, who He made us to be, to be in His image and likeness. For example, to be faithful, forgiving, just, holy, so and so forth. And then we find in the scriptures, God's expression of who He is. Different attributes or metaphors that have been used by the authors of the scriptures to describe who God is. Because character is hard to define sometimes, right? And so metaphors somehow communicate uh, who God is sometimes better. Who, what God does with who He is, for example, as we have prayed as, as, uh, earlier as well, God is Father, Provider, He's the Comforter, the Shepherd, so and so forth. So these are the various aspects of who God is in His nature, His character and expression. For this sermon series, we will focus primarily on His character and expressions so that we can become like Him, to know Him, and then to become like Him. This sermon series also seeks to prepare us to step into our church team for next year, Mission with the Master. Besides knowing who God is, we must know who our Master is to give us the assurance and the faith that we can truly trust Him to partner with Him in His mission. Because if we fail to capture the heart of God and allow our hearts to be broken by what breaks His, a lot of our activities that we do for, for church even may actually be in vain. And so it's really vital that we all have a real and living relationship with God just as Jesus himself taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, we can do great things for God and yet fail to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me give us the warning here from Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's a very somber warning for all of us. There are several problems here. First, here people use Christ's name for self-advancement and benefits. Maybe some of us have heard of this phrase called friends for benefits. But here we have faith for benefits. They use God's name to so-called do even miracles. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, I don't know you. You are evildoers. We can do many things using God's name. And yet, at the end of the day, Jesus might say to us, he may not know us. Why? Because unlike Jesus, these people do not do the will of the Father. They do not do the will of the Father. You can use God's name to do many things, but you may not actually be doing the will of the Father. So to see it differently, to become like Jesus then, is to do the will of the Father. That is our end goal. To completely be like Jesus is to be like Him, to do the will of the Father. Perhaps one reason Jesus says, I never knew you, is simply because we never resembled Him in the way that Jesus is fully obedient to God. And that is our life's goal. To know Him is to become like Him, to be fully obedient to God. Now let's approach it from another angle, using this metaphor, this imagery of knowing. To know about someone, and then to actually know that person is actually very different. They are not equal. I don't know how to do the mathematical sign, not equal, but this is what I can do on the slides. To know about someone is not the same as knowing the person, actually, right? And then for the person to know us. These three are not the same. Let me just illustrate with a simple example. Recently, the Roman Catholic Church Archbishop, uh, William Goh, he was made a cardinal and one of those who can cast his votes uh, to elect the next pope. So I can do a simple Google search and find out all the facts about him. For example, I found out that he was born in 1957. Right? So facts-wise, I can boast. I know about him. Now, the fact of the matter is, I actually did meet him in person. Years ago, when he was not yet the Archbishop, my Roman Catholic priest friends brought me to the Francis, Francis, uh, St. Francis Xavier Seminary. So I can proudly and confidently say to all of you, I shook his hands. Wow, I know him, you know. I spoke with him, you know. But does he know me? <laughs> I highly doubt he will remember the encounter. So I think we understand this illustration. I can know about him. I can even say, I know him. But does he know me? That is the key question. Does he know me? Do we truly know him? Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. To know God. That is the one thing that God desires from all of us, that we will truly know Him. That He is the God who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness. This again, the character of who God is. Do we know Him and become like Him and do these things as well? So what about our relationship with God? Do we only know about God? Do we merely possess information about God and we can back up this information with the Bible even? Or do we truly know God? His character, 
his values, his ways. And even if we can confidently say that we know God, still the most important question remains, does God know us? <laughs> does he know us? I suppose all of us here, we are Methodists because of John Wesley. Many of us probably also know how he went to America as a missionary, but along the way, the ship met with a terrible storm and Wesley feared for his life greatly. And on the same ship were Moravian Christians who were boldly praising God in the midst of the storm. And that's when Wesley was really stirred. How is it that these people trusted God so much and yet I don't and I am here a preacher? So much so that when eventually he learned about uh, this guy called August Spengelbert, he spoke with him after he arrived in Georgia. And so Spengelbert and Wesley had this conversation. Let me just share with us. My brother said Spengelbert to Wesley, Do you know Jesus Christ? I know, replied Wesley, that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Wow, he only knows what Jesus did huh, historically. That's not what I ask you, pursued Spangenberg, pressing the question further home. Do you know Jesus Christ? I hope he has died to save me, stammered Wesley. Spangenberg then asked Wesley, do you know yourself? Wesley replied, in person then, I do. But in his own journal, he honestly confessed that these were vain words. You see, we can lie to other people. We can try to convince other people. I wouldn't say he's lying, but he's trying to convince Spangleberg here. But we can never lie to ourselves. Our spirit will testify whether truly we know God or not. So he, in his own journal, he confessed that these were vain words. Then he also wrote separately, I went to America to convert the Indians. He wrote bitterly in his journal on his way home to England. But oh, who shall convert me? I have a fair summer religion, or what we call a fair weather friend nowadays, right? Someone who is only there for the good times. Are we Christians who are only there for the good times? I can talk well, nay, and I believe myself when no danger is near. But let death look me in the face, and my spirit is troubled. Because of this storm experience, he realized actually he didn't really believe in God. He didn't have the assurance of peace, right? Unlike the more reverent Christians. I have learned that I who went to America to convert others was not converted myself. And so if we have doubts, you are not alone. John Wesley had doubts about his own assurance of salvation as well. From then on, however, and I pray all of us will go on this quest as well, John Wesley went on a quest to really know God, not just to know about God and hope that He has died for our sins, not just an empty hope, but truly to have an encounter with God. And to cut the long story short, we know this is why we celebrate Aldous Gate every year. Because God granted him an experience that truly answered his longing once and for all. In the evening, says Wesley, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warm. But I want to focus on the next few sentences. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The first phrase, I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation. This was John Wesley having assurance that he knows God. And then the next phrase, assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, saved me from the law of sin and death. That's God's assurance to John Wesley that God knows him. You see, this assurance, this mutual assurance is so vital. What about us? Do we just know about God? 
Do we really know God personally? Most importantly, do we have the assurance that God knows us? Do we have this assurance that God knows us? Now, if your answers to these two latter questions are no, don't fret, there is a solution. We need to be honest, humble, and hungry. John Wesley, first of all, was honest. He confessed to himself, no, actually, I don't really know God. I don't have the assurance. Then be humble, be hungry to seek. The first step to scriptural salvation is always poverty of spirit. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Very first sermon, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's only when you recognize that you're poor in spirit, then you're open to divine revelation, to know God. And then seek God with all your heart. And I believe, like John Wesley, God will give you the same assurance of salvation, the experience, because it's the same God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what God did for John Wesley, first of all, was an internal assurance that he truly knew God, and then God knew him. But John Wesley also understood the importance of having external assurance, a life that is truly safe, will evidence fruits of salvation and repentance in godliness, holiness, good works, and above all, obedience to the will of the Father. These are signs externally that truly you are also safe, not just having an inward assurance because you can lie and deceive other people, right? But these external works of evidence will confirm what is inward. So both the inward and external assurances are vital. But remember again Matthew 7, the good deeds that we do, so-called even in God's name, may actually not really come from God himself, but really from us, our own selfish desire. But if yet we truly know him, we will also do the Father's will. So good works and faith is wonderful balance. We need to know that ultimately it comes from knowing God. So this Knowing God sermon series, we will do our best as preachers and, and teachers to present to you what God has revealed about himself. We may even share our personal stories, you know, testimonies about this God that we know intimately. But there are three things that we cannot do for all of you. Number one, we cannot make you know God for yourself. There's no way we can do that. We can teach about who God is, but these are just information about God. We cannot help you to know God for yourself. You need to have that own spiritual hunger. Secondly, of course, we cannot make God know you. <laughs> we are not God. Only His Spirit, but I know His Spirit is good. He longs to reveal Himself to you and for you to know Him better, but you need to have that humility. And then thirdly, we cannot force you to live out God's truth. We can teach, but at the end of the day, it is up to you how you want to handle the Word of God. The first will require hunger, the second requires humility, and the third requires obedience. These are the ways of the kingdom. Now, the good news is that the Bible promises that those who seek God shall be found by Him. First Corinthians, uh, Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9, And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve Him with wholehearted devotion, with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart, understands every desire and every thought. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will reject you forever. Of course, this is in the context of King David talking to his son Solomon, but we believe the principle extends to us as well. If we seek God, the promise of God is that He will be found by us. Jeremiah 29, verses 13 to 14 as well. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I banish you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. 
In context, this was Jeremiah talking to the exiles, right? You are sent here, but don't worry, God still loves you. If you seek him all your heart, he will bring you back. He will never forsake his people because that is his, his nature. God is always faithful. Matthew 7, 7, very famous passage. Ask, you'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. So over and over again, the promises of God are the same. Seek God, and you will surely be found by Him. So that's the wonderful good news. And so this sets really the foundation for the whole sermon series, to know God, right? We'll explore different expressions of who God is. There are three things we cannot do for you, to be hungry for God yourself, to have the humility, and for you to obey. But we will teach who God is. Today we want to explore the most fundamental aspect of who God is. In fact, not just this sermon, but next week as well. The Holy Trinity. In His most divine nature, the Holy Trinity, one God in three persons. This nature we can never be because we are one person. <laughs> He's one God in three persons. But we, it's important that we begin with the very essence of who God is. Before He is even created God, He is Trinity. Now, to be clear, the word Trinity can never be found in any version of the Bible. Alright, so let's be very upfront about this. But it doesn't mean that God has not revealed Himself as Trinity. There are many Bible passages we will see all three persons of the Holy Trinity in action or being mentioned at the same occasion. This week, we have seen 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Next week, we will look at Matthew chapter 28. Uh, but, but there are actually many passages to review the three persons in one God. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one person, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in one verse. All three persons are involved in one single act of blessing. It's not each one blessing us separately. Eh? Three persons, but one single act of blessing. And so for the purposes of our remaining time today, I just want to focus on two practical implications. Even if you don't fully understand the mystery, I'm sure all of us have always, uh, at some point in our lives, asked this question, how is it that He's three persons and one God? And then we cannot fully understand this mystery, right? But even if you don't fully understand the mystery, we need to understand two things. Number one, the Trinity always operates as one. They are never separate from each other in their operation, in their act, whatever they are doing. Just as we have seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, all three persons are involved in one single act of blessing. Secondly, and most importantly, is for us to imitate the Trinity, to become like Him in the way they operate as Trinity. This one I'll focus more in the next sermon, but today I'll just touch on it a little bit. Share with us, first of all, two uh, quotations from those who have lived earlier in the church life. First of all, Gregory of Nyssa, he lived 330 to 395 AD. And this is why he writes, Every operation which extends from God to the creation has its origin from the Father, proceeds through the Son, and is perfected in the Holy Spirit. So the Father is the one who originates. right? The origin is the Father, done through the Son, but perfected in the Holy Spirit. The operation is not divided. What comes by the action of the tree, yet what does come to pass is not three things. Even though there are three people acting, at the end, there is one final result. When we inquire where this good gift comes to us, we find by the guidance of the Scriptures that it was from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet, although we set forth three persons and three names, one from each person separately, but the same life is wrought in us 
or achieved in us by the Father, prepared by the Son, and depends on the will of the Holy Spirit. So three persons involved, but there's one final action, or one action together. The next person, Julian of uh, Norwich, he lived somewhere around this period, uh, 1342 onwards. For all our life consists of three. In the first, God the Father, we have our being. In second, the God the Son, we have our increasing. And in the third, God the Holy Spirit, we have our fulfillment. The first is nature, the second is mercy, the third is grace. Many of these theologians are very chima, they write very difficult language. But I want to summarize again to all of us. Basically, it means while there are three persons of God at work, ultimately they all achieve one single operation. The three are never divided. They have different roles. They play different roles, but they always operate as one. There is never any internal disagreement or conflict within the Trinity. Different roles, but never conflict. Always for one common purpose. Now, if you need some Bible verses to support, in case you think some of these church fathers are not reliable, and I know there are certain people with this inclination, give to you some Bible verses. John 5, chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. So the Father originates, right? He begins the work. And the Son continues the work. And then when the Son lives, the Holy Spirit comes to bring it to fulfillment. That's how the Trinity operates. Another passage, John 16, verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, this is Jesus' teaching, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears. So it's not only the, the Son saying or doing whatever the Father is doing. Now the Holy Spirit will speak whatever He hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. This me here refers to Jesus because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So the Father has given everything to the Son and now the Son gives everything to the Holy Spirit who makes it known to all of us. So while there are three persons clearly taught by the scriptures, yet there is only one single operation. Now if this is still too cheap, don't worry, <laughs> it's okay. It's far more important for all of us as the African theologian Christopher Moreleka, hopefully I didn't massacre his name, Moreleka imitated the Trinity. He says the most important thing is not to understand, but to imitate the Trinity. I think we have problems in understanding the Holy Trinity because we approach the mystery from the wrong side. The intellectual side is not the best side to start with. We try to get hold of the wrong end of the stick and it never works. The right approach to the mystery is to imitate the Trinity. God does not reveal himself to us for the sake of speculation. He is not giving us a riddle to solve. He is offering us life. He is telling us this is what it means. To live. Now begin to live as I do. What is the one and only reason why God revealed this mystery to us if it is not to stress that life is not life at all unless it is shared? Wonderful reflection by this African theologian. What is the one reason God has revealed to us the mystery is to help to let, let us know that we must imitate Him 
to share our lives together, just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always share their lives together. I really love his approach to theology because it is not, you know, ivory tower theology. It is theology applied for us to live it out in our lives. Many times, however, you know, as human beings, we still need real-life situations to help us concretize what does it mean to share our lives together. How do we imitate the Trinity to have no conflict, no disagreement, to learn to care and submit to each other? An anthropologist proposed a game to kids in an African tribe. He put a basket of fruit near a tree and he told the kids the first one to find the fruits will win all the fruits. And when he told them to run, he was surprised. Instead of running, you know, each of them selfishly for themselves, they took hold of each other's hands and they ran together. They looked for the fruits together. Eventually, they found the fruits together. They sat down together and they enjoyed the fruits together. And when the anthropologist asked them why they ran like that, instead of running separately in their individual ways, why did they hold hands to run together? They said, Ubuntu. Ubuntu. How can one of us be happy if all the others are sad? Ubuntu means I am because we are. I am only because we are. Very communal way of thinking. Not like the Western so-called, huh? they cut way. I am, I think, therefore I am. <laughs> only myself, myself thinking I am. Western philosophy. African children, better theology. I am because we are. Ubuntu, that's the meaning. And that's basically how the Holy Trinity operates as well. Ubuntu. God is because they are. We don't understand the mystery, it's okay. More importantly, we need to imitate the Holy Trinity. So next week, we will explore further what it means uh, to imitate the Trinity, what it means for us in terms of our personal discipleship, as well as our missional approach. How should we do it as individuals and as a community, as a church? Suffice to say now that one of the main reasons why the early church in Acts chapter 2, they want so many converts is because they were so filled with the selfish love, that unity in Christ, that they reflected really God himself, the Holy Trinity, selfless, caring for each other just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always together as one. Let me close with what happened during Hell Week for me as a naval diver. Many of you know that I was a naval diver, but I don't think I ever shared with you what happened during Hell Week, right? In all my 11 years here at, at Amoko Methodist Church. So Hell Week, uh, if you watch the movies by Jack New, you kind of have a glimpse into it. It's one of the most important grueling times of our training as naval divers. And so the instructors will split themselves into three shifts of eight hours block each. So for them, very good. They got three shifts. They can take turns, go home and rest. But for us, it's 24 hours non-stop. The gun <laughs> punishment. So they have three shifts, huh? but we only got one shift. Continuous. The whole week, non-stop training. We call it hell week because we are not allowed to rest throughout this whole week. We had to do this non-stop physical training for five to six days. And the only time we got to rest is if we earn it. Whether it's running 20 km, swimming 2 km, rowing the boat for 10 km, whatever the, exercise, uh, the, that the challenge is, the only time we were allowed to rest is if we com competed as a boat team against other boat teams and then we won. 
So if the event is swimming 2km, our team will swim the relay. If we win, then our team will rest. If not, we continue again. So the cycle goes like this. So for another one that is quite common for us during how it was this, we had to earn also our time to eat at lunch. So we have six teams. The first team to finish the run will go and eat first. The other five teams continue running. Keep running and running until the last team is left and has the least time to eat. So that's basically on repeat mode. Lah. Six days doing the same thing. Every competition you have to win. If not, you cannot rest. And so the instructors pitted us against each other, hoping that you know our selfish desires will, will win, that we will try to grab extra sleep for ourselves, that we will fight to win the extra hour of sleep. And so for the first two days, I have to be honest, we were quite selfish. We cared only about ourselves, about our own boat, that we must win. Don't care the rest. We must win so that we can have rest. But as time progressed over the week, we discovered that we can actually cheat the system. We will take turns to lose. We will take turns to lose, even though we are the fastest. My boat is the best at running and the worst at swimming. We will purposely lose the running so that others can, run, can rest. Because for us, running is easy. We can run anytime. But we choose to lose so that those who cannot run so well finishes first and they rest. And we keep on running. And the reverse happens. We cannot swim so well, they let us win first so that we can rest during the swimming leg. Because for the rest, swimming is easy for them. And that's how we decided, hey, that's how we will beat the system. In the end, we made sure every boat team had the, roughly the same amount of hours to sleep. Average five to six hours the whole week. Lah. Still not a lot, but nonetheless, at least everybody won. We are kind of averaged out the sleeping hours. Looking back, we think that we have defeated the instructors. We cheated the system, so-called, right? But actually, I think in the end, the instructors won <laughs> because they achieved their goal. The other name for Hell Week is called Team Building Week. Team Building Week. One for all and all for one. It's not about individual glory and rest even. To take turns to sacrifice so that at the end of the day, everybody wins. Ubuntu. I am because we are. That's really what the Trinity is like. One for all and all for one. Everyone distinct, but yet together they are one unit. Each one fully sacrificial and selfless. I pray for all of us that we will imitate the Trinity in our, all our lives as Christians to always live in community, selfless, sacrificial. Come, let us pray. O Holy God, you who have revealed yourself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we praise you for who you are. Even before we praise you for all that you have done for us, we praise you because, God, you are holy and unique and so out of this world. And you have set for us the greatest pattern, how you exist eternally and happily, perfectly as Trinity. And so, Father, I pray for all of us, especially at Amokyo Methodist Church, we will imitate you to learn to look out for each other, to sacrifice for the common good. So help us to do this, for we know this is impossible by human effort. It can only be done by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray also for ourselves. If we lack the assurance to know you individually, we pray you will grant to us the same and even greater experience than what you've given to John Wesley. And we have confidence for we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.